Volume Two, Chapter Eleven of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven. All things have their several stages, and without a knowledge of the preceding one, it is impossible to judge accurately of any event which is the immediate subject of our contemplation. The life of every one, the history of the whole world that we inhabit, is but a regular drama with its scenes and acts each depending for its interest upon that which preceded. I therefore judge it necessary, before going on to detail the events which took place in Mr. Croyland's house during his absence, to visit the dwelling of his brother, and give some account of that which produced them. On the same eventful morning, then, of which we had spoken so much already, the inhabitants of Harborne House slept quietly during the little engagement between the smugglers and the dragoons, unaware that things of great importance to their little circle were passing at no great distance. I have mentioned the inhabitants of Harborne House, but perhaps it would have been more proper to have said the master, his family, and his guest, for a number of the servants were up, the windows were opened, and the wind, setting from Woodchurch, brought the sound of firearms thence. The movement of the troops from the side of West Holdham was also remarked by one of the housemaids and a footman, as the young lady was leaning out of one of the windows with the young gentleman by her side. In a minute or two after they perceived, galloping across the country, two or three parties of men on horseback, as if in flight and pursuit. Most of these took to the right or left, and were soon lost to the sight. But at length one solitary horseman came on at a furious speed towards Harborne House, with a small party of dragoons, following him direct at a couple of hundred yards' distance, while two or three of the soldiery were seen scattered away to the right, and a somewhat larger body appeared moving down at a quick pace to the left, as if to cut the fugitive off at Gallows Green. The horse of the single rider seemed tired and dirty, and he was himself without a hat, but nevertheless they pushed on with such rapidity that a few seconds from the time when they were first seen brought steed and horseman into the little parish road which I have mentioned as running in front of the house, and passing round the grounds into the wood. As the fugitive drew near, the maid exclaimed, with a sort of half-scream, "'Why, Lord, have mercy, Matthew, it's young Mr. Radford!' "'To be sure it is,' answered the footman. "'Didn't you see that before, Betsy? There's a number of the dragoons after him, too. He's been up to some of his tricks, I'll warrant.' "'Well, I hope he won't come in here at all events,' rejoined the maid, "'for I shouldn't like it if we were to have any fighting in the house.' "'I shall go and shut the hall door,' said the footman, dryly. Richard Radnor, not having ingratiated himself as much with the servants as he had done with their master. But this precaution was rendered unnecessary, for the young man showed no inclination to enter the house, but passing along the road with the rapidity of an arrow, was soon lost in the wood, without even looking up towards the house of Sir Robert Croyland. Several of the dragoons followed him quickly, but two of them planted themselves at the corner of the road and remained there immovable. The maid then observed that she thought it high time the gentlefolks should be called, and she proceeded to execute her laudable purpose, taking care that tidings of what she had seen concerning Mr. Radford should be communicated to Sir Robert Croyland, to Zara, and to the servant of Sir Edward Digby, who again carried the intelligence to his master. The whole house was soon afoot, and Sir Robert was just out of his room in his dressing-gown when three of the soldiers entered the mansion, expressing their determination to search it, 
and declaring their conviction that the smuggler whom they had been pursuing had taken refuge there. In vain Sir Robert Coyland remonstrated, and inquired if they had a warrant. In vain the servants assured the dragoons that no person had entered during the morning. The sergeant who was at their head persisted in asserting that the fugitive must have come in there, just when he was hid from his pursuers by the trees, assigning as a reason for this belief that they had found his horse turned loose not a hundred yards from the house. They accordingly proceeded to execute their intention, meeting with no farther impediment till they reached the room of Sir Edward Digby, who, though he did not choose to interfere, not being on duty himself, warned the sergeant that he must be careful of what he was doing, as it appeared that he had neither magistrate, warrant, nor custom-house officer with him. The sergeant, however, who was a bold and resolute fellow, and moreover a little heated and excited by the pursuit, took the responsibility upon himself, saying that he was fully authorised by Mr. Burchett to follow, search for, and apprehend one Richard Radford, and that he had the colonel's orders too. Certainly not a nook or corner of Harborne House did he leave unexamined, before he retired, grumbling and wondering at his want of success. Previous to his going, Sir Edward Digby charged him with a message to the colonel, which proved as great an enigma to the soldier as the escape of Richard Radford. "'Tell him,' said the young baronet, "'that I am ready to come down if he wants me, "'but that if he does not, "'I think I am quite as well where I am.' "'The breakfast passed in that sort of hurried and desultory conversation "'which such a dish of gossip, "'as now poured in from all quarters, usually produces, "'when served up at the morning meal. "'Sir Robert Croyland, indeed, looked ill at ease, "'laughed and jested in an unnatural and strained tone "'upon smugglers and smuggling.' and questioned every servant that came in for further tidings. The reports that he thus received were as full of falsehood and exaggeration as all such reports generally are. The property captured was said to be immense. Two or three hundred smugglers were mentioned as having been taken, and a whole legion of them killed. Some have made confession and clearly proved that the whole property was Mr. Radford's, and some had fought to the last and killed an incredible number of the soldiers to believe the butler, who received his information from the hind, who had his from the shepherd, the man called the major, before he died, had absolutely breakfasted on dragoons, as if they had been prawns, but all agreed that never had such a large body of contraband traders been assembled before, or suffered such a disastrous defeat in any of their expeditions. Sir Edward Digby gathered from the whole account that his friend had been fully successful, that the smugglers had fought fiercely, that blood had been shed, and that Richard Radford, after having taken an active part in the affray, was now a fugitive, and as the young baronet fancied, never to appear upon the stage again. But still Sir Robert Croyland did not seem by any means so well pleased, as might have been wished, and a dark and thoughtful cloud would frequently come over his heavy brow, while a slight twitching of his lips seemed to indicate that anxiety had as great a share in his feelings as mortification. Mrs. Barbara Croyland amused herself as usual by doing her best to tease everyone around her, and by saying the most malapropos things in the world. She spoke with great commiseration of the poor smugglers. Every particle of her pity was bestowed upon them. She talked of the soldiers as if they had been the most fierce and sanguinary monsters in Europe, who had attacked, unprovoked, a party of poor men that were doing them no harm. 
till Zara's glowing cheek recalled to her mind that these very bloodthirsty dragoons were Sir Edward Digby's companions and friends, and then she made the compliment more pointed by apologising to the young baronet and assuring him that she did not think for a moment he would commit such acts. Her artillery was next turned against her brother, and in a pleasant tone of raillery she joked him upon the subject of young Mr. Radford and of the search the soldiers had made, looking with a meaning smile at Zara and saying, "'She dared say Sir Robert could tell where he was if he liked.' The baronet declared sharply and truly that he knew nothing about the young man, but Mrs. Barbara shook her head and nodded and looked knowing, adding various agreeable insinuations of the same kind as before, all in the best humour possible, till Sir Robert Croyland was put quite out of temper, and would have retorted violently, had he not known that to do so always rendered the matter ten times worse. Even poor Zara did not altogether escape, but, as we are hurrying on to important events, we must pass over her share of infliction. The conclusion of Mrs. Barbara's field-day was perhaps the most signal achievement of all. Breakfast had come to an end, though the meal had been somewhat protracted, and the party was just lingering out a few minutes before they rose, still talking on the subject of the skirmish of that morning, when the good lady thought fit to remark, "'Well, we may guess for ever, but we shall soon know more about it, for I dare say we shall have Mr. Radford over here before an hour is gone, and he must know if the goods were his.' This seemed to startle, nay, to alarm, Sir Robert Croyland. He looked round with a sharp, quick turn of his head, and then rose at once, saying, "'Well, whether he comes or not, I must go out and see about a good many things. "'Would you like to take a ride, Sir Edward Digby, or what will you do?' "'Why, I think I must stay here for the present,' replied the young baronet. "'I may have a summons unexpectedly, and ought not to be absent.' "'Well, you will excuse me, I know,' answered his entertainer. "'I must leave my sister and Zara to amuse you for an hour or two till I return.' Thus saying, and evidently in a great bustle, Sir Robert Croyland quitted the room and ordered his horse. But just as the three whom he had left in the breakfast-room were sauntering quietly towards the library, Sir Edward Digby, calculating by the way how he might best get rid of Mrs. Barbara, in order to enjoy the fair Zara's company undisturbed, they came upon the baronet at the moment when he was encountered by one of his servants bringing him some unpleasant intelligence. "'Please, Sir Robert,' said the man, with a knowing wink of the eye, "'all the horses are out.' "'Out?' cried the baronet, with a look of fury and consternation. "'What do you mean by out, fellow?' "'Why, they were taken out of the stable last night, sir,' replied the man. "'I dare say you know where they went, and they have not come back again yet.' "'Pray, have mine been taken also?' demanded Sir Edward Digby, "'very well understanding what sort of an expedition Sir Robert Cornyn's horses had gone upon.' "'Oh, dear, no, sir,' replied the man. "'Your servant keeps the key of that stable himself, sir.' The young baronet instantly offered his host the use of one of his steeds, which was gratefully accepted by Sir Robert Croyland, who, however, thought fit to enter into an exculpation of himself, somewhat tedious withal, assuring his guests that the horses had been taken without his approbation or consent, and that he had no knowledge whatsoever of the transaction in which they were engaged.' Sir Edward Digby professed himself quite convinced that such was the case, and in order to relieve his host from the embarrassment which he seemed to feel, explained that he was already aware that the Kentish smugglers were in the habit of borrowing horses without the owner's consent. In our complicated state of society, however, everything hinges upon trifles. 
we have made the watch so fine that the grain of dust stops the whole movement, and the best arranged plans are thrown out by the negligence, the absence, or the folly of a servant, a friend, or a messenger. Sir Edward Digby's groom could not be found for more than a quarter of an hour. When he was, at length, brought to light, the horse had to be saddled. An hour had now nearly elapsed since the master of the house had given orders for his own horse to be brought round immediately. He was evidently uneasy at the delay, peevish, restless, uncomfortable, and in the end he said he would mount at the back door, as it was the nearest and the most convenient. He even waited in the vestibule, but suddenly he turned, walked through the double doors leading to the stable-yard, and said he heard the horse coming up. Mrs. Barbara Croyland had, in the meantime, amused herself and her niece in the library, with the door open, and sometimes she worked a paroquet in green, red, and white silk embroidery, a favourite occupation for ladies in her juvenile days, and sometimes she gazed out of the window or listened to the conversation of her brother and his guest in the vestibule. At the very moment, however, when Sir Robert was making his exit by the doors between the principal part of the house and the offices, Mrs. Barbara called loudly after him. "'Brother Robert! Brother Robert! Here is Mr. Radford coming!' The baronet turned a deaf ear and shut the door. He would have locked it, too, if the evasion would not have then been too palpable. But Mrs. Barbara was resolved that he should know that Mr. Radford was coming, and up she started, casting down a half a dozen cards of silk. Zara tried to stop her, for she knew her father and all the signs and indications of his humours but her efforts were in vain. Mrs. Barbara dashed past her, rushed through both doors, leaving them open behind her, and caught her brother's arms just as the horse, which he had thought fit to hear approach a little before it really did so, was led up slowly from the stables to the back door of the mansion. "'Robert, here is Mr. Radford,' said Mrs. Barbara aloud. "'I knew you would like to see him.' The baronet turned his head and saw his worthy friend, through the open doors just entering the vestibule. To the horror and surprise of his sister, he uttered a low but bitter curse, adding in tones quite distinct enough to reach her ear, "'Woman, you have ruined me!' "'Good gracious!' cried Mrs. Barbara. "'Why, I thought—' "'Hush! Silence!' said Sir Robert Croyland, in a menacing tone. "'Not another word on your life!' And turning, he met Mr. Radford with the utmost suavity— but with a certain degree of restraint which he had not time to banish entirely from his manner. "'Ah, Mr. Radford,' he exclaimed, shaking him too heartily by the hand, "'I was just going out to inquire about some things of importance.' And he gazed at him with a look which he intended to be very significant of the inquiries he had proposed to institute. But his glance was hesitating and ill-assured, and Mr. Radford replied with the coolest and most self-possessed air possible— and with a firm, fixed gaze upon the baronet's countenance. "'Indeed, Sir Robert,' he said, "'perhaps I can satisfy you upon some points, "'but at all events I must speak with you for a few minutes before you go. "'Good morning, Sir Edward Digby. "'Have you had any sport in the field? "'I will not detain you a quarter of an hour, my good friend. "'We had better go into your little room.' He led the way thither as he spoke, and Sir Robert Croyland followed with a slow and faltering step. He knew Richard Radford— he knew what the calm and self-possessed manner meant. He was aware of the significance of courteous expressions and amicable terms from the man who called him his good friend. And if there was a being on earth on whose head Sir Robert Croyland would have wished to stamp as on a viper's, 
It was the placid benign personage who preceded him. They entered the room in which the baronet usually sat in a morning to transact his business with his steward and to arrange his affairs, and Sir Robert carefully shut the door behind him, trying, during the one moment that his back was turned upon his unwelcome guest, to compose his agitated features into the expression of haughty and self-sufficient tranquillity, which they usually wore. "'Sit down, Radford,' he said. "'Pray sit down, if it be but for ten minutes.' and he pointed to the armchair on the other side of the table. Mr. Radford sat down and leaned his head upon his hand, looking in the baronet's face with a scrutinising glance. If Sir Robert Croyland understood him well, he also understood Sir Robert Croyland, heart and mind, every corporeal fibre, every mental peculiarity. He saw clearly that his companion was terrified. He divined that he had wished to avoid him, and the satisfaction that he felt at having caught him just as he was going out, at having frustrated his hope of escape, had a pleasant malice in it, which compensated for a part of all that he had suffered during that morning, as report after report reached him of the utter annihilation of his hopes of immense gain, the loss of a ruinous sum of money, and the danger and narrow escape of his son. He had not slept a wink during the whole of the preceding night, and he had passed the hours in a state of nervous anxiety which would have totally unmanned many a strong-minded man when his first fears were realised but mr radford's mind was of a peculiar construction apprehension he might feel but never by any chance discouragement all his pain was in anticipation not in endurance the moment a blow was struck it was over his thoughts turned to new resources and in reconstructing schemes which had been overthrown, in framing new ones or pursuing old ones which had been slumbered, he instantly found comfort for the past. Thus he seemed as fresh, as resolute, as unabashed by fortune's late frowns as ever, but there was a rankling bitterness, an eager wolf-like energy in his heart, which sprung both from angry disappointment and from the desperate aspect of his present fortune, and such feelings naturally communicated some portion of their acerbity to the expression of his countenance, which no effort could totally banish. He gazed upon Sir Robert Croyland then with a keen and inquiring look, not altogether untinged with that sort of pity which amounts to scorn, and after a momentary pause he said, "'Well, Croyland, you have heard all, I suppose.' "'No, not all, not all, Radford,' answered the baronet, hesitating. "'I was going out to inquire. "'I can save you the trouble, then,' replied Mr. Radford dryly. "'I am ruined. "'That is to say, in the last two ventures I have lost considerably more than a hundred thousand pounds.' "'Sir Robert Croyland waved his head sadly, saying, "'Terrible, terrible, but what can be done?' "'Oh, several things,' answered Mr. Radford. "'And that is what I have come to speak to you about.' "'because the first must rest with you, my excellent good friend.' "'But where is your son, poor fellow?' asked the baronet, eager to avoid as long as possible the point to which their conversation was tending. "'They tell me he was well-nigh taken, and after there has been bloodshed, that would have been destruction. Do you know they came and searched this house for him?' "'No, I had not heard of that, Croyland,' replied Mr. Radford. "'But he is near enough, well enough, and safe enough to marry your fair daughter.' Uh, "'Yes,' answered Sir Robert. "'That must be thought of, and—' "'Oh, dear, no!' 
cried the other, interrupting him. It has been thought of enough already, Croyland. Too much, perhaps. Now it must be done. Well, I will go over to Edith at once, said the baronet, and I will urge her by every inducement. I will tell her that it is her duty, that it is my will, and that she must and shall obey. Mr. Radford rose slowly off his seat, crossed over the rug to the place where Sir Robert Croyland was placed, and leaning his hand upon the arm of the other's chair, he bent down his head, saying in a low but very clear voice and perfectly distinct words, "'Tell her her father's life depends upon it.' Sir Robert Croyland shrank from him, as if an asp had approached his cheek, and he turned deadly pale. "'No, Radford, no,' he replied in a faltering and deprecatory tone. "'You cannot mean such a horrible thing. "'I will do all that I can to make her yield. "'I will, indeed. "'I will insist. "'I will—' "'Sir Robert Croyland,' said Mr. Radford, sternly and slowly, "'I will have no more trifling. "'I have indulged you too long. "'Your daughter must be my son's wife before he quits this country, "'which must be the case for a time.' till we can get this affair wiped out by our parliamentary influence. Her fortune must be his, she must be his wife, I say, before four days are over. Now, my good friend, he continued falling back in a degree into his usual manner, which had generally a touch of sarcastic bitterness in it when addressing his present companion. What means you may please to adopt to arrive at this desirable result I cannot tell, but as the young lady has shown an aversion to the match, not very flattering to my son. "'Is it not his own fault?' cried Sir Robert Croyland, roused to some degree of indignation and resistance. "'Has he ever, by word or deed, sought to remove that reluctance? Has he wooed her as a woman always requires to be wooed? Has he not rather shown a preference to her sister, paid her all attention, courted, admired her?' "'Pity you suffered it, Sir Robert,' answered Radford. "'But permit me, in your courtesy, to go on with what I was saying. "'As the young lady has shown this unfortunate reluctance, "'I anticipate no effect from your proposed use of parental authority. "'I believe your requests and your commands will be equally unavailing, "'and therefore, I say, tell her her father's life depends upon it, "'for I will have no more trifling, Sir Robert, no more delay, no more hesitation.' It must be settled at once, this very day. Before midnight I must hear that she consents. Or oh, you understand? And consent she will, if you but employ the right means. She may show herself obstinate, undutiful, careless of your wishes and commands, but I do not think that she would like to be the one to tie a halter round her father's neck, or to bring what I think you gentlemen of heraldry and coat-armour call a cross-patence into the family-bearing. <laughs> do you, Sir Robert? The unhappy gentleman to whom he spoke covered his eyes with his hand, but from beneath his features could be seen working with the agitation of various emotions, in which rage, impotent though it might be, was not without its share. Suddenly, however, a gleam of hope seemed to shoot across his mind. He withdrew his hand. He looked up with some light in his eyes. A thought has struck me, Radford, he said. "'Zara, we have talked of Zara. "'Why not substitute her for Edith? "'Listen to me, listen to me. "'You have not heard all.' "'Mr. Radford shook his head. "'It cannot be done,' he replied. "'It is quite out of the question.' "'Nay, but here,' exclaimed the baronet, "'not so much out of the question as you think. 
Look at the whole circumstances, Radford. The great obstacle with Edith is that unfortunate engagement with young Leighton. She looks upon herself as his wife. She has told me so a thousand times, and I doubt even the effect of the terrible course which you urge upon me so cruelly. Mr. Radford's brow had grown exceedingly dark at the very mention of the name of Leighton, but he said nothing, and, as if to keep down the feelings that were swelling in his heart, set his teeth hard in under his lip. Sir Robert Croyland saw all these marks of anger, but went on. Now the case is different with Zara. Your son has sought her, and evidently admires her, and she has herself shown by no means unfavourable towards him. Besides, I can do with her what I like. There is no such obstacle in her case, and I could bend her to my will with a word. Yes, but hearing me out, I know what you would say. She has no fortune. All the land that I can dispose of is mortgaged to the full. The rest goes to my brother if he survives me. True, all very true. But, Radford, listen, if I can induce my brother to give Zara the same fortune which Edith possesses, if this night I can bring it you under his own hand, that she shall have fifty thousand pounds? You shake your head. You doubt that he will do it. But I can tell you that he would willingly give it to save Edith from your son. I am ready to pledge you my word that you shall have that engagement under his own hand this very night, or that Edith shall become your son's wife within four days. Let us cast aside all idle circumlocution. It is Edith's fortune for your son that you require. You can care nothing personally which of the two he marries. As for him, he evidently prefers Zara. She is also well inclined to him. I can, I am sure I can, offer you the same fortune with her. Why should you object? Mr. Radford had resumed his seat, and with his arms folded on his chest and his head bent, had remained in a listening posture but nothing that he heard seemed to produce any change in his countenance, and when Sir Robert Croylent had concluded, he rose again, took a step towards him, and replied, through his shut teeth, "'You are mistaken, Sir Robert Croyland. It is not fortune alone I seek. It is revenge. There, ask me no questions. I have told you my determination. Your daughter Edith shall be my son's wife within four days, or Maidstone jail, trial, and execution shall be your lot.' The haughty family of Croyland shall bear the stain of felony upon them to the last generation, and your daughter shall know, for if you do not tell her, I will, that it is her obstinacy which sends her father to the gallows. No more trifling, no more nonsense. Act, sir, as you think fit, but remember that the words, once past my lips, can never be recalled. That the secret I have kept buried for so many years shall to-morrow morning be published to the whole world, if to-night you do not bring me your daughter's consent to what I demand. I am using no vain threats, Sir Robert Croyland, he continued, resuming a somewhat softened tone, and I do not urge you to this without some degree of regret. You have been very kind and friendly. You have done me good service on several occasions, and it will be with great regret that I become the instrument of your destruction. But still every man has a conscience of some kind, and I am occasionally troubled with qualms, and I frequently reproach myself for concealing what I am bound to reveal. It is a pity this marriage was not concluded long ago, for then, connected with you by the closest ties, I should have felt myself more justified in holding my tongue. Now, however, it is absolutely necessary that your daughter Edith should become my son's wife. I have pointed out the means which I think will soonest bring it to bear, 
and if you do not use them, you must abide the consequences. But mark me, no attempt at delay, no prevarication, no hesitation. A clear, positive, distinct answer this night by twelve o'clock, or you are lost. Sir Robert Croyland had leaned his arm upon the table and pressed his eyes upon his arms. His whole frame shook with emotion, and the softer and seemingly more kindly words of the man before him were even bitterer to him than the harsher and the fiercer. Though he did not see his face, he knew that there was far more sarcasm than tenderness in them. He had been his slave, his tool for years, his tool through the basest and most unmanly of human passions, fear, and he felt not only that he was despised, but that in that moment Radford was revelling in contempt. He could have got up and stabbed him where he stood, for he was naturally a passionate and violent man, but fear had still the dominion, and after a bitter struggle with himself, he conquered his anger and gave himself up to the thought of meeting the circumstances in which he was placed, as best he might. He was silent for several moments, however, after Mr. Radford had ceased speaking, and then, looking up with an anxious eye and quivering lip, he said, "'But how is it possible, Radford, that the marriage should take place in four days?' The bans could not be published, and even if you got a license, your son could not appear at church within the prescribed hours without running a fatal risk. We will have a special license, my good friend, answered Mr. Radford, with a contemptuous smile. Do not trouble yourself about that. You will have quite enough to do with your daughter, I should imagine, without annoying yourself with other things. As to my son, I will manage his part of the affair, and he can marry your daughter in your drawing-room, or mine, at an hour when there will be no eager eyes abroad. Money can do all things, and a special licence is not so very expensive, but that I can afford it still. My drawing-room will be best, for then we shall be all secure. But Radford, Radford, said Mr. Robert Croyland, if I do, if I bring Edith at the time appointed, if she become your son's wife, you will give me that paper, that fatal deposition? Oh, yes, assuredly, replied Mr. Radford, with an insulting smile. I can hand it over to you as part of the marriage settlement. You need not be the least afraid. And now I think I must go, for I have business to settle as well as you. Stay, stay a moment, Radford, said the baronet, rising and coming nearer to him. You spoke of revenge just now. What is that you mean? I told you to ask no questions, asked the other sharply. "'But at least tell me if it is on me or mine that you seek revenge,' exclaimed Sir Robert Croyland. "'I am unconscious of ever having injured or offended you in any way.' "'Oh, dear, no,' replied Mr. Radford. "'You have nothing to do with it. "'No, nor your daughter either, though she deserves a little punishment for her ill-treatment to my son. "'No, there is one on whom I will have revenge, deep and bitter revenge, too. "'But that is my affair, and I do not choose to say more.' You have heard my resolutions, and you know me well enough to be sure that I will keep my word. So now go to your daughter and manage the matter as you judge best. But if you will take my advice, you will simply ask her consent and make her fully aware that her father's life depends upon it. And now good-bye, my dear friend. Good luck attend you on your errand, for I would a great deal rather not have any hand in bringing you where destiny seems inclined to lead you very soon. Thus saying, he turned and quitted the room, and Sir Robert Croyland remained musing for several minutes, his thoughts first resting upon the last part of their conversation. "'Revenge!' he said. "'He must mean my brother, and it will be bitter enough to him to see Edith married to this youth. 
bitter enough to me too but it must be done it must be done he pressed his hand upon his heart and then went out to mount his horse but pausing in the vestibule he told the butler to bring him a glass of brandy the man hastened to obey for his master's face was pale as death and he thought that sir robert was going to faint but when the baronet had swallowed the stimulating liquor he walked to the back door with a quick and tolerably steady step mounted and rode away alone before i follow him though anxious to do so as quickly as possible i must say a few words in regard to mr radford's course after he had reached the parish road i have mentioned on which one or two dragoons were still visible slowly patrolling round harborne wood the man who had exercised so terrible an influence upon sir robert croyland turned his horse's head upon the path which led straight through the trees towards the cottage of widow clare his face was still dark and cloudy and trusting to the care and sure-footedness of his beast he went on with a loose rein and his eyes bent down towards the saddle-bow evidently immersed in deep thought when he had got about two-thirds across the wood he started and turned round his head for there was a the sound of a horse's feet behind and he instantly perceived a dragoon following him and apparently keeping him in sight mr radford rode on however till he came out not far from the gate of mrs clare's garden when he saw another soldier riding slowly round the wood with careless air however as if he scarcely perceived these circumstances he dismounted buckled the rein of his bridle slowly over the palings of the garden and went into the cottage closing the door after him he found the widow and her daughter busily employed with the needle making somewhat smarter clothes than those they wore on ordinary occasions it was poor kate's bridal finery mrs clare instantly rose and dropped a low curtsey to mr radford who had of late years frequently visited her cottage and occasionally contributed a little to her comfort in a kindly and judicious manner sometimes he had sent her down a load of wood to keep the house warm sometimes he had given her a large roll of wooden cloth a new gown for her daughter or herself or a little present of money but mr radford had his object he always had well mrs clare said mr radford in as easy and quiet a tone as if nothing had happened to agitate his mind or derange his plans so my pretty little friend kate is going to be married to worthy jack harding i find kate blushed and held down her head and mrs clare assented with a faint smile there has been a bad business of it this morning though said mr radford looking in mrs clare's face i dare say you've heard all about it over there in the valley by woodchurch and redbrook street mrs clare looked alarmed and kate forgot her timidity and exclaimed oh is he safe oh yes my dear answered mr radford in a kindly tone you need not alarm yourself he was not in it at all i don't say he had no share in running the goods for that is pretty well known i believe and he did his part of the work well but the poor fellows who were bringing up the things by some folly or mistake i do not know which got in amongst the dragoons were attacked and nearly cut to pieces ay then that is what the soldiers are hanging about here for said mrs clare it's a sad affair for me indeed continued mr radford thoughtfully i am truly sorry to hear that sir exclaimed mrs clare for you have always been very kind to me well my good lady replied her visitor perhaps you may now be able to do me a kindness in return said mr radford to tell you the truth my son was in this affray he made his escape when he found that they could not hold their ground 
and it is for him that the soldiers are now looking. At least, I suspect so. Perhaps you may be able to give a little help if he should be concealed about here? That I will, said Widow Clare, if it costs me one of my hands. Oh, there'll be no danger, answered Mr. Radford. I only wish you, in case he should be lying where I think he is, to take care that he has food till he can get away. It might be better for Kate here to go rather than yourself, or one could do it at one time and the other at another, with a basket on her arm and a few eggs on the top. Kate could trip across the wood as if she were going to Harborne House. You could boil the eggs hard, you know, and put some bread and other things underneath. Then, at the place where I suppose he is, she could quietly put down the basket and walk on. "'But you must tell me where he is, sir,' answered Mrs. Clare. "'Certainly,' replied Mr. Radford. "'That is to say, I can tell you where I think he is. "'Then, when she gets near it, she can look round to see if there's anyone watching, "'and if she sees no one, can say aloud, "'Do you want anything?' "'If he's there, he'll answer, and should he send any message to me, "'one of you must bring it up.' "'I shan't forget to repay you for your trouble.' "'Oh, dear, sir, it isn't for that,' said Mrs. Clare. "'Kate and I will both be very glad indeed "'to show our gratitude for your kindness. "'It is seldom poor people have the opportunity, "'and I am sure, after good Sir Robert Croyland, "'we owe more to you than to anybody.' "'Sir Robert has been kind to you, I believe, Mrs. Clare,' "'replied Mr. Radford, with a peculiar expression of countenance. "'Well, he may be.' "'He has not always been so kind to you and yours.' "'Pray, sir, do not say a word against Sir Robert,' answered the widow, "'though he sometimes used to speak rather cross and angrily in former times. "'Yet since my poor husband's death, nothing could be more kind than he has been. "'I owe him everything, sir.' "'Aye, it's all very well, Mrs. Clare,' replied Mr. Radford, shaking his head with a doubtful smile. "'It's all very well. "'However, I do not intend to say a word against Sir Robert Croyland.' "'He's my very good friend, you know, and it's all very well. "'Now, let us talk about the place where you or Kate are to go. "'But above all things, remember that you must not utter a word about it to anyone, "'either now or hereafter, for it might be the ruin of us all if you did.' "'Oh, no, not for the world, sir,' answered Mrs. Clare. "'I know such places are not to be talked about, "'and nobody shall ever hear anything about it from us.' "'Well, then,' continued Mr. Radford, "'You know the way up to Harborne House through the gardens. "'There's a little path to the right, and then, halfway up that, "'there's one to the left, which brings you to the back of the stables. "'It goes between two sandy banks, you may recollect. "'And there's a little pond with a willow growing over it, "'and some bushes at the back of the willow. "'Well, just behind these bushes there is a deep hole in the bank, "'high enough to let a man stand upright in it when he gets a little way down.' It would make a famous hide if there were a better horse-path up to it, and sometimes it has been used for small things, such as a man can carry on his back. Now from what I have heard, my boy Richard must be in there, for his horse was found, it seems, not above two or three hundred yards from the house, broken-kneed and knocked up. If anyone should follow you as you go and make inquiries, you must say that you are going to the house, for there is a door there in the wall of the stable-yard, though that path is seldom, if ever, used now. But if there is nobody by, you can just set down the basket by the stump of the willow and ask if he wants anything more. If he doesn't answer, speak again, and try at all events to find out whether he's there or not, so that I may hear. Oh, I know the place quite well, said Mrs. Clare. My poor husband used to get gravel there, 
"'But when do you think I had better go, sir? "'For if the dragoons are still lingering about, "'a thousand to one, but they follow me, "'and, more likely still, may follow Kate. "'So I shall go myself to-night, at all events.' "'You had better wait till it is duskish,' answered Mr. Radford, "'and then they'll soon lose sight of you amongst the trees, "'for they can't go up there on horseback, "'and if they stop to dismount, "'you can easily get out of their way. "'Let me have any message you may get from Richard, "'and don't forget, either, "'if Harding comes up here "'to tell him I want to speak with him very much. "'He'll be sorry enough for this affair "'when he hears of it, "'for the loss is dreadful.' "'I'm sure he will, sir,' said Kate Clare, "'for he was talking about something "'that he had to do,' "'and said it would half kill him "'if he did not get it done safely.' "'Aye, he's a very good fellow,' "'answered Mr. Radford, "'and you shall have a wedding-gown from me, Kate. "'Look out of the window, there's a good girl, "'and see if any of those dragoons are about.' "'Kate did as he bade her, "'and replied in the negative, "'and Mr. Radford, after giving a few more directions, "'mounted his horse and rose away, "'muttering as he went, "'Aye, Mr. Harding, I have a strong suspicion of you.' and I will soon satisfy myself. They must have had good information, which none could give but you, I think. So look to yourself, my friend. No man ever injured me yet who had not cause to repent it. Mr. Radford forgot that he no longer possessed such extensive means of injuring others as he had formerly done, but the bitter will was as strong as ever. End of chapter 11